0: Father, your steadfast love goes on and on. Your mercies are new each morning, your word is eternal. Lord Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today and forever. We confess that we failed to be like you, that our love is capricious and often self-serving, that we are more inclined to pass judgment than to show mercy, That our word is not always our bond, and we love loopholes. That we often are carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, rather than remaining steadfast in the word of God. Forgive us, we pray, and give us steady, truthful, faithful hearts. We do thank you for the fresh mercies of this past week. We thank you for daily bread and shelter and family. We thank you for the children and families served by Valley Christian School. We thank you for the sweetness of Wilma Stiles' funeral on Friday and the pleasure of seeing old friends. We thank you for the before you 5K race on Saturday, for the good fellowship enjoyed and the money raised to support urban promise. We thank you for the freedom to worship you freely and without fear. Faithful and dependable Father, the troubles of our lives are largely self inflicted and they are entirely the result of sin in this world. Hear us now as we pray for others and ourselves for our needs and wants. We pray for our children for our own flesh and blood who sometimes carry in their bodies and in their characters the weaknesses they have inherited or learned from us. We pray for their safety and for their salvation. We pray that you would be their shepherd. We pray for the family and friends of Wilma Stiles as they continue to grieve her passing and adjust to their loss. We pray for Rich Good and ask that you continue to heal his wounds and strengthen his body. We pray for the many volunteers who shepherd our children in our nurseries, in our Burning Bush Children's Sunday School. We ask that you equip and encourage those who serve, that you would raise up new volunteers to share the burden, that you would bless all involved in that ministry as they bless the next generation of this church. Faithful and dependable Father, again and again we turn to you with our prayers because you are a God who wants to hear from us because you have helped us so many times in the past. Hear our prayers in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I will be reading verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing... But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I love babies, and I love little kids. And I love them because they are beautiful, with their perfect faces and their fingers and their toes. They carry the image of God, an image not yet burdened with cares or worn by time. I love babies and I love little kids and I love them because they're just the right size. I like kids when they're small enough to drape across my forearm. I like them when they're small enough to swing around. I like them when they're small enough to hold your hand on the sidewalk. I like little babies and little kids and I love them because they are appreciative If you make a funny face for them, they smile. If you tickle their feet, they laugh. Try that with old people and you will discover what a bunch of grumpy sourpusses we become as time moves on. I love babies and I love little kids. I love their innocence, how they see things for the first time. I love their delight in small things, their appetite for good things and their willingness to giggle. We older People were a little harder to love, if you really want to know the truth. None of us is as beautiful or as easily delighted as a young child, and we certainly are pricklier and more complicated than little children. You want to know why children are so lovable? Because God made them. These children that you see running around this church these children that we are looking to expand our nursery to accommodate, these children are the little brothers and little sisters of Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? Anyone here looking forward to seeing Jesus? Well, you can't quite yet. But would you like to meet his little sister? Sure, I believe in original sin. Every parent does. But a child, fresh and innocent, doesn't bear so many scars of sin that you and I bear. And so what we see in a child is the purest, most unsullied version of the image of God that we will see on planet earth until Jesus returns. Because God made them in his own image. Because the image of God is visible in the child. And so when we hold a child in our arms, when we hold a child's hand on the sidewalk, we are as close to God as we can come in the flesh this side of eternity. We should be awestruck when we look at babies. Because when you pick up a child like Adeline or Brody or Gracie or Bowden or Tristan... When you hold the hand of a child like Oliver or Paige or Nathan or Stephen or Blaze or Annie Laurie, you are in physical contact with the closest thing to God himself that exists on planet earth. I'm not making this up. I'm not being sappy or sentimental. I'm just quoting Jesus. You all know the story of Jesus blessing the children. Luke 18.15 opens the scene, quote, people were bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. I guess they said something like, Hey, get those noisy kids out of here. Don't you know that we're trying to have church? Put those rugrats in the nursery and put the nursery in the basement away from the important work of adults. Or something like that. And Luke goes on and says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. May we never make Jesus indignant. We know from Scripture that the two quickest ways to provoke the wrath of Jesus are number one, to be proud and haughty, lording it over other people. He hates that. And number two, to be dismissive of or unkind toward the little people of this world. Poor people, sinners and outcasts, widows, orphans, women and children generally. We will be judged by how we treat the little people. When Jesus saw this, the exclusion of children from the heart of the church, he was indignant. And so he gave marching orders for the future church. Let the little children come to me because I'm the center of the church. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you truly, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took up the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. That's a picture of the church. That's a picture of our church. A place where children, the tiniest, the most vulnerable of us, are brought into the very center of our care and held in our arms and are blessed. That's why Rich Good and the Growth and Expansion Committee are working so hard to find a solution to the challenges of our ongoing baby boom. To give our youngest members a space that is safe and welcoming and near the beating heart of this congregation. Not shoved off in some leftover places that won't disturb the grown-ups. Because children are not a disturbance. They are a sign of the kingdom of God. You might have noticed that Jesus never said, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a mature Presbyterian elder will never enter it. Apparently, we grumpy guys have no advantage over little babies when it comes to getting to heaven. But why am I talking about babies? Aside from the fact that they're so beautiful. When I'm supposed to be preaching about the resurrection. Because new life... And resurrected life have the same source. God is a creating God. God is the God who made babies come into the world. He is the recreating God. He's the God who returns life to things that have become lifeless. He's the resurrecting God because he not only is the source of life to begin with, but he is the source of new life. I want you to understand this principle. The one who created life in the first place is the one who can resurrect life when it dies. The one who brought good things into being in the first place is the one who can renew them when things go sour. Hold that principle in mind. We've got some ground to cover before we bring it all home. But hold this principle in mind. The one who created life in the first place is the one who can resurrect life when it dies. And the one who brought good things into being in the first place is the one who can renew them when those things go sour. The church exists because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's a story you've heard a hundred times, I hope, But it's so wonderful that it bears hearing again. Jesus was publicly crucified, and he died on a Friday afternoon. And after he died, while he was still attached to the cross, a soldier drove a spear up into his side, and out of his abdomen gushed blood and water. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus claimed the body and prepared it for burial and laid it in a stone tomb that Joseph had had constructed for himself. The next day, Saturday, the Sabbath day, was Passover, and so Jesus lay in the tomb, in this borrowed tomb that day. On Sunday morning... The first day of the following week, Mary Magdalene and other women came to the tomb to tend the body of Jesus. His preparation for burial on Friday had been done by men and maybe the women thought they could do a better job. They loved him, of course. There were so many women who were part of Jesus' entourage. He was the rabbi who did the unthinkable. He spoke to women like they were real people. And he allowed them to study Torah, which had been a privilege reserved for men. John tells us that Mary Magdalene arrived at the tomb before dawn and discovered that Jesus was missing. She ran to tell Simon Peter and the other men that Jesus was gone. No one knew what had happened to him. How could they? Peter and John came racing to the tomb. John stays outside, but Peter rushes in, and all that is there are these burial cloths. John gives us this odd detail that the face cloth was folded up by itself, not with the other wrappings. What does that mean? And in verse 8, John, speaking about himself, writes, Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, many Jews in Jesus' time believed in a coming resurrection. You'll recall the story of Lazarus in John Chapter 11, Lazarus is in his tomb, he's stone cold dead, and his sister Martha is inconsolable. She's telling Jesus that he should have gotten here sooner, because if he had gotten here sooner, her brother wouldn't have died, and Jesus says to her that Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha, with some impatience, says to Jesus, yes, yes. I know that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. But Martha doesn't want to see her brother on the last day. She wants him now. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. In the beginning, no one understood what was going on. Yes, there will be a general resurrection at the last day. But Jesus was resurrected early. The first fruit Paul calls him of the coming resurrection, a foretaste, a down payment, a proof of concept. See? It is possible for dead people to come back to life. Look here at Jesus. It happened to him. The disciples weren't expecting that, and so the scene at the tomb is full of confusion and fear. But something clicks in John's mind. He saw and he believed. John looks into the tomb and he sees the face cloth of the man he saw crucified three days earlier, now lying neatly folded mysteriously on the platform in the tomb. John saw this and he believed. It is really important for us to understand that the Gospels are not philosophical treatises. They are not moral exhortations. They are historical accounts of extraordinary events. John saw and he believed. The resurrection was not hearsay. It wasn't some story that he cooked up. It wasn't a pre-existing legend that he repurposed. It wasn't a philosophical system that he adopted. His gospel account is of what he saw and what he heard. And if you don't believe that then you might ask yourself the question, why were John and the other disciples so willing to die for this story? Of the twelve disciples, only John was not murdered for the gospel. And he died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Why would a dozen men suffer in that way for a made-up story? It doesn't make sense. John saw and he believed. Last week we talked about the crucifixion. Jesus knew that he was going to die on a cross, and he said uh, to his disciples that it was his father's will that he die. Way back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the baptizer saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and on Good Friday, Jesus did just that. The sins of the world. Were put on innocent Jesus and the right and a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ was revealed. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five twenty one, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That explains the crucifixion, but why the resurrection? When a lamb is sacrificed, its death atones for the sin and the guilt of the person presenting the sacrifice. But the lamb doesn't come back to life. It remains dead. So why was Jesus raised from the dead? Sin, all sin, is opposition to God. And God is the only source of life. And so sin is an opposition to life. Sin, in fact, is a desire for death. Sin is a death wish. And ultimately, persistent sin gets exactly what it wants. When Jesus conquered the power of sin by his own atoning death, Jesus put death to death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 says, For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus destroys death. Jesus' conquest of sin on the cross caused death to have no hold over him. Like a bobber pushed under the water, the body of Jesus had to rise. One day... Each one of us will also be pushed under the waters of death, but we who are in Christ will just as surely come bobbing back to the surface. Death cannot hold us down, because the power of sin is broken. Christianity is the resurrection religion. It is that in three ways. Number one, there would be no... Christians, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, Christians are people who have always confessed the bodily resurrection of Christ. Number two, we also will be raised from the dead. Just like Jesus, we will die. And then later, our bodies are going to be reconstituted. And they're going to be brought back to life. The promise of the resurrection is that we will be made like Christ. We will have a glorified body like him. And that body will be as perfectly natural to us as the body that we have today. Because God creates life, he also is able to recreate life. It is no harder for God to call the universe into existence than it is for God to do that again. God created the world in six days and he didn't even break a sweat. He's going to do it all over again. And number three, there is also a spiritual resurrection that started when we were born again by faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you recognize that the universe contains more things than we can measure with thermometers and calipers and mass Spectrometers. There is more to God's creation than just matter and energy. The Nicene Creed opens with this statement. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen, that's the physical stuff, and unseen, that's spiritual stuff. Heaven and earth are seen, our bodies are seen, and yes, they will be renewed and they will be resurrected, but so too will the unseen world, the world of the spirit. What do we find in this world of spirit? Well, in fact, that's where we find all of the interesting stuff. That's where we find all of the stuff that we really care about, all of the stuff that really counts. In the physical realm, we have things like weight, And temperature and size, which are all very nice. And I'm glad that there are people who study those kinds of things. But in the realm of spirit, we have value and harmony and delight and meaning and beauty and compassion and awe and truth and love and wonder and purpose and worship. As humans, we operate in both realms. In the seen and the unseen, we are both body and spirit The body side of the equation, the physical realm that we are able to measure and to manipulate is close at hand and easy to see, but if our eyes are only on the physical side, if we neglect the spiritual side, we actually lose our humanity. We become brutes. We become like animals or plants. The physical sciences can, for example, tell you the weight of your child at birth. You plunk that... Maybe on the scale, and you read out the numbers. But those sciences have nothing to say about the value, or the worth, or the dignity of your child at birth. There are no instruments which measure those kinds of spiritual realities. So while the physical universe will be renovated and uh, uh, resurrected a new heaven, a new earth, new bodies, so too will the spiritual world. And that resurrection, that spiritual resurrection, while not yet complete, has already begun. It has begun in each and every person who is in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And that is not a metaphor It is a spiritual reality, not one that you can measure with calipers or thermometers, but it is one that is as real to any born again Christian as the thoughts of their own mind. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we allow our sins to be lifted off our back and placed on the cross, our spirits change, our spirits are revivified, and the new and wonderful changes begin to unfold in our lives. When we are dead in our sin and our trespasses, we follow the desires of our flesh or the opinions of the crowds or the path of least resistance. But when we are made alive in Christ, we begin to follow a new way, a better way. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians at Colossae, people who used to be pagans, encourages them in this way. He writes, Put to death, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. That's spiritual resurrection. That is renewal, and that is ours now. That's who we are today. Yes, I understand that we continue to struggle with the old self, with the earthly nature, but a change began when we were born again, and that change will continue until that day when we meet Jesus face to face. We live in a funny place, we live in a fallen but partly restored world in a kind of halfway house. At Calvary, Jesus won the victory over sin and death. All of the enemies of, of God were routed. Jesus was crowned king of kings. But the final consummation of that work has yet to come. Things are not yet as they sh- are supposed to be, which is why we keep praying, thy kingdom come, because it's not here yet. When it comes, we will experience the fullness of God's resurrection. But what about now? How am I supposed to live in this body which has aches and pains and is susceptible to disease and death? How am I supposed to live with myself when I don't do the things that I know that I should do and I do the things that I know that I shouldn't do? How am I supposed to live with my spouse when we seem to disappoint each other as often as we please each other? How am I supposed to live in this world where hatred and cruelty abound? Where justice and honesty cannot be taken for granted. Where defenseless people are the playthings of those with greater power. In other words, how can the light of of the resurrection equip us for life in this fallen world? The answer to that question I call the resurrection two-step. Step one, keep reminding yourself that the victory is already won. And step two, move forward in hope and step out in faith. Let me look at these separately. Step one, keep reminding yourself that the victory is already won. Jesus faced the power of sin and death and he won the victory for us. A total victory. It's a done deal. If we have faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Done. If we have placed faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Done. If we've placed faith in Jesus, we will become more and more like Jesus with each passing year. Done. If we've placed faith in Jesus, our bodies will rise from the grave. Done. The outcome of the Second World War was not clear at the beginning. There was no guarantee that good would triumph over evil. But at some point, the back of the enemy was broken. And while there still was work to be done, the outcome was assured. And it must have been easier to soldier on knowing that the cause was not lost. The outcome of our battle is also assured. Satan's back has been broken and the day when he is eternally destroyed is coming. Yes, we must soldier on in the meantime, but we march forward knowing that the victory is guaranteed and that a homecoming is around the corner. Hopelessness and despair are irrational weapons of the enemy. They are not reasonable words from God. In 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 we read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. The only appropriate Christian response to hopelessness and despair is to rebuke the devil who has planted that lie. And if you're not feeling it in your guts... If you are not naturally hopeful, then let your rational brain, your scripture-soaked brain, override your guts and tell you that any feeling of hopelessness is not from God and should not be taken seriously. Jeremiah 29 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and to not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's God's promise to us. Rebuke any devil who would tell you otherwise. God has plans to prosper you and to not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Receive and believe that word for you today. You who are in Christ are also in God's plan. And God's plan is perfect and good. Hope isn't optimism. Hope isn't a pep talk. Hope isn't being a Pollyanna. Hope, in fact, is a reasonable and rational understanding of who God is. That he's good, that he's loving, that he's powerful, that he is irresistible, that he is victorious, and that he is full of plans for us. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That's a word for us. That's a word for today. Step number one in the resurrection two-step, keep reminding yourself that the victory is won. And then step number two, move forward in hope and step out in faith. The book of Lamentation, the saddest book in the Bible, a book written during the darkest days of God's people, has this lovely promise and lovely affirmation buried inside of it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. One of the hardest things about getting older is that when I've mastered the challenges of today, tomorrow brings new challenges. And all I want to do is to remain in today and to avoid tomorrow. Our lives unfold chapter by chapter and generally speaking about the time that we've mastered one chapter, we are called to enter into another chapter and our desire for security and familiarity, at least if you're like me, screams out, no, leave me back in chapter one, I'm really good at chapter one. This past summer, as the summer was drawing to a close and the new year was about to begin, my daughter Mia began to to worry. Uh, she loved Mrs. Mitchell, her first grade teacher here at Valley Christian School. And in the second grade, she was going to have another, a new teacher, and she knew that she was going to have to start reading chapter books. And so she wanted to stay in the first grade. As God's children, as pilgrims on God's narrow way, life on this side of eternity is an unfolding sequence of new chapters, of new challenges in which God reveals to us new mercies. So we step into the new challenge with hope and faith, knowing that our victory is assured. Lots of us in this room this morning are at chapter changes in our lives. We stand on a threshold. And we teeter between grief over what we are leaving behind and anxiety over what's ahead. So what should we do? Well, we move forward in hope. And we step out in faith. We don't freeze up. We don't stand still. We don't stay stuck because God's mercies are new every day. We've known the steadfast love of the Lord in the past. We treasure those blessings and we thank God for them. But God has new blessings and new favors in store. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God has new blessings and new mercies for us. Let God's faithful track record reassure you. He's done well by you. He's brought you this far. He's not going to let you down when you do something new tomorrow. The resurrection two-step. Number one, keep reminding yourself that the victory is already won. And number two, move forward in hope and step out in faith. Creation and resurrection really are the same thing. God makes good things and God makes things good again. The biblical view of history is that the best, at least since the time we were expelled from the Garden of Eden, that the best is always out in front of us. The past is familiar. The past is comfortable. The past was good. But there are fresh goodnesses and mercies in store for us on the road ahead. And we will miss out on those in our lives, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our Christian discipleship, in our community, if we cling To the past. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they loved Jesus. They loved him in life, they loved him in death and at his burial, but the best actually lay ahead for them. Verse 17 of our reading this morning from the Gospel of John has something very mysterious to say. I hope you noticed it as we were blazing through it. Jesus says to Mary Magdalene on the morning of his resurrection, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do not cling even to the risen Christ? How can that be? Well, because there's more glory ahead. Jesus had yet to ascend to the Father, where his glory would be multiplied. Almighty God created you. And when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, He resurrected your sin-dead spirit. That resurrection is unfolding in you and in your life like a blossom in the sun, becoming fuller and more beautiful with each new day. Keep reminding yourself that the victory is already won and move forward in hope and step out in faith. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you this day. We thank you for the testimony of Brother John and his presence there at the tomb. Lord, we thank you that he ran so fast that he got to the tomb first. We thank you for his testimony, for what he saw, and we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit you allowed him as well to believe. Lord, we pray this day that we might trust in the truths that you have revealed to us. We pray that we might act on them, trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.